The Daily 202 is supported by the Showtime docuseries, The Circus. Get a different perspective on the 2020 presidential campaign from hosts John Heilman, Alex Wagner, and Mark McKinnon as they go behind the scenes and beyond the headlines of the most important story of our time. Don't miss The Circus, Sundays at 8 p.m., only on Showtime. Good morning from Concord, New Hampshire. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, February 10th. In today's news, President Trump's new budget shows just how unserious he is about reducing the deficit. A cruise ship parked off the coast of Japan has at least 136 people aboard who are infected with coronavirus. And ISIS looks poised for a resurgence in Afghanistan. But first, the big idea. The top two finishers in last week's Iowa caucuses, 40 years apart in age and representing opposite ends of the Democratic Party's ideological spectrum, are heading for a showdown in Tuesday's primary here, each taking increasingly aggressive swipes at the other. But there's an unusual twist to this new rivalry between Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg, which intensified last night after the Iowa State Party announced that Buttigieg probably won 14 Iowa delegates to the convention this summer, and Sanders got 12. The senator from Vermont and the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, are not fighting to win over the same pool of voters, especially here in New Hampshire, though many likely to vote remain undecided. Rather, based on conversations with strategists in both campaigns, each side is trying to energize his own supporters by vowing to block the other from winning the Democratic nomination. With Sanders, the Democratic Socialist, portraying Buttigieg as a captive to his billionaire donors, and the more centrist Buttigieg railing against Sanders as a, quote, my way or the highway leftist. That effort burst into full view on Sunday as the candidates hopscotched across this snow-covered state. At a canvas lunch in Plymouth, Sanders said Buttigieg has taken money from over 40 billionaires, and he said they're giving to him because they know that he'll never take on the corporate elite. Buttigieg, meanwhile, continued to paint Sanders as too radical. At his event on Sunday, he pushed his usual critique further, calling Medicare for All irresponsible and warning that there's no way Sanders can win in a general election. The growing friction between these two guys comes as both are taking fire from other rivals who are scrambling to finish in the top three in the Granite State. Nightly tracking polls show Sanders in the lead with Buttigieg nipping at his heels. Joe Biden, who finished far behind in Iowa and has been slipping every night in New Hampshire, continues attacking Sanders as too liberal and Buttigieg as too untested. Amy Klobuchar likewise has questioned both men on similar fronts. Elizabeth Warren is trying to paint herself as the most electable liberal. Biden, Warren, and Klobuchar all want to finish third desperately to keep their campaigns viable going into Nevada at the end of next week and then South Carolina a week after that. Mike Bloomberg is waiting in the wings for the following week when more than half the delegates are awarded on Super Tuesday. Strategists and other veteran observers of the New Hampshire primary say that tomorrow's election largely could come down to how Sanders and Buttigieg play off each other. Some of Sanders' strategists see a benefit to aggressively confronting Buttigieg because they hope that his voters might then flee to Biden or Klobuchar, splitting up support in the more centrist wing of the party. The rivalry between Pete and Bernie has been months in the making, in part because of the extreme contrasts between the two. 
Sanders, 78, would be the oldest U.S. president in history. Buttigieg, 38, would be the youngest. Sanders would be the most liberal nominee in decades, maybe going back to George McGovern. Buttigieg would mark a return to a pragmatic approach more typical of recent nominees. Sanders has galvanized young people and the working class, including non-white voters, but has struggled to attract people older than 50. Buttigieg appeals to older and more affluent college-educated white voters, as well as some in rural areas, but he struggled mightily with non-white voters. Many supporters of the two candidates feel disdain for one another. I covered a dinner on Saturday night that was sponsored by the State Democratic Party in Manchester. All the candidates spoke. When Buttigieg criticized Sanders, saying that it's a false choice to tell people they must either be revolutionaries or for the status quo, Bernie's crowd in the audience started booing and chanting Wall Street Pete. When Sanders spoke a few minutes later, he told the crowd he was excited to have won the most votes in the Iowa caucuses, prompting a roar from his supporters. But then the Buttigieg people in the audience started chanting that they had won. In New Hampshire, the two are also competing for the biggest crowds. Buttigieg's campaign sent in an email to reporters yesterday that he had attracted 1,841 people to an event. Literally minutes later, the Sanders campaign emailed reporters that they had drawn 1,981 people to an event nearby. Sanders decisively defeated Hillary Clinton here four years ago by more than 20 points. And polls show that his favorability is actually quite high, even if his level of support has fallen far below what it was when he was the sole anti-establishment option. The audiences that the two candidates tend to draw at the events I've attended over the last few days are quite different. Sanders attracts youthful, raucous crowds. They roar his name. They rail against the establishment. They cheer on high-profile surrogates like Michael Moore doing the same. Often, they share stories of economic suffering and hardship. They make minimum wage. Attendees at Buttigieg events are older and largely white. They applaud politely. They cheer him when he suggests that his movement is open to anyone, particularly when he talks about the need to reach out to dispirited Republicans. One wrinkle of the New Hampshire primary is that independents, the largest block of voters, can cast a ballot in the Democratic primary if they want. This could mean a lot more moderates voting, which could help Buttigieg. Some Sanders advisors earlier had privately welcomed the rise of Buttigieg, reasoning that there was much less overlap between their sets of voters than there was between supporters of Buttigieg and his two main rivals, Biden and Warren. They figured Buttigieg's ascent wouldn't come at Sanders' expense, which some of them feared would be the case with Biden or Warren surging after Iowa. But now, Sanders and his team have changed their tune. They're increasingly focused on trying to finish ahead of Buttigieg because they want to blunt his gains and avoid being overshadowed by a fresher face. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start the week. Number one, President Trump this afternoon is going to propose a $4.8 trillion budget that would fail to eliminate the federal deficit over the next 10 years. Instead, White House officials say their budget proposal would close the deficit by 2035. During Trump's first year in office, his advisors said their budget plan would eliminate the deficit by 2028. This new budget marks the third consecutive time that they have abandoned that 10-year goal and instead suggested a 15-year target. This new trend underscores just how little progress this White House has made in dealing with ballooning government debt something GOP leaders used to insist was their number one priority during the Obama administration when they were out of power. Trump's first budget projected the deficit in 2021 
would only be $456 billion. Instead, it's going to be more than double that amount. In fact, it's going to be more than a trillion dollars. As a presidential candidate four years ago, Trump repeatedly promised that he would eliminate not just the annual federal deficit, but all debt held by the United States after eight years in office. The federal debt has already grown more than $3 trillion since Trump took power. This new Trump budget aims to slash spending on safety net programs that people depend on, like Medicaid and food stamps. The budget is also going to propose 5% net cuts in domestic discretionary spending, including slashing the budget of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The administration says that they're not cutting the part of the CDC that is fighting the coronavirus. At the same time, Trump will maintain Pentagon spending at its current level, and actually, really, he wants to boost it if you include the so-called overseas contingency account. As in past budgets, this one will call for cutting heavily into programs targeting low-income communities, including massively slashing community development block grants and home heating assistance for seniors. Trump wants to cut the Education Department's budget by $6 billion. The proposed budgets for non-defense domestic agencies, including programs that deal with housing, environmental protection, and agriculture, will fall well below spending caps that lawmakers and the administration already agreed to in the bipartisan budget deal for 2021. That all but ensures that Trump's budget will face bipartisan opposition on Capitol Hill. So how is it that the budget deficit gets bigger and bigger, even as Trump is proposing to cut all of these programs? Well, Trump wants to extend tax cuts that are set to expire at the end of 2025. Budget experts have projected that extending those tax cuts would further reduce revenue by a trillion dollars. Number two, the number of people infected and killed by the coronavirus continues to climb worldwide. But the vast majority are still concentrated in the original outbreak zone of Wuhan. The global death toll from the novel coronavirus reached more than 900 yesterday after previously surpassing the 774 fatalities attributed to the SARS outbreak in 2002 and 2003. Among the dead was the first American, a 60-year-old woman who died Thursday in Wuhan. An international team led by the World Health Organization has finally gone into China to conduct its own investigation of what's happened. As infections overwhelm the afflicted province, the rest of China might be seeing the effects of the strict quarantine measures. In all parts of China outside Wuhan, and this is according to the government, so we have to take it with a grain of salt, their government, the daily number of new infections dropped from nearly 900 on February 3rd to 500 on Saturday. WHO officials said they have seen the number of new cases outside of Wuhan taper in recent days. The Chinese ambassador to the United States pushed back yesterday on the suggestion by Senator Tom Cotton, the Republican from Arkansas, that the coronavirus may have come from China's biological weapons program. Appearing on CBS's Face the Nation, the Chinese ambassador acknowledged that much about the virus remains unknown, but he said Cotton spreading unsubstantiated theories could cause panic and amplify racial discrimination. Meanwhile, infections aboard a quarantined cruise ship off the coast of Japan have surged, bringing to 136 the number of people who are known to be infected on that vessel. There are 3,700 passengers aboard. What a nightmare. Number three, the Afghanistan government claims that the Islamic State has been obliterated, but fighters who managed to get away could stage a resurgence. In fact, they're planning on it. 
It has now become clear that military operations also scattered many fighters that they aimed to defeat. The group's senior leadership fled further into the Spingar Mountains, crossing into Pakistan or pushing north into Konar Province's more rugged terrain. Others simply went into hiding. Afghan officials estimate that hundreds of Islamic State fighters continue to operate across the country, raising the dangerous potential for that resurgence. Our reporters on the ground interviewed senior Afghan and U.S. officials in the region, as well as seven self-described ISIS members who are now in Afghan custody. Those interviews paint a picture of a group that has a history of persevering despite territorial and leadership losses, thanks in part to a sophisticated recruitment system, but also the use of extreme violence to control civilian populations. And in a tragic reminder that America's longest war continues, two U.S. Army Special Forces soldiers were killed and six more U.S. troops were wounded late Saturday night after a gunman opened fire in an eastern Afghanistan compound. Afghan officials say the attacker was a member of the Afghan security forces. The investigation continues, but it appears to have been an inside job. The Pentagon has identified our fallen soldiers as Sergeant First Class Javier Jaguar Gutierrez of San Antonio and Sergeant First Class Antonio Rey Rodriguez of Las Cruces, New Mexico. They were both 28 years old. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, February 10th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.